Thank you, Melissa. I hope everyone is doing well. If you have your copy of Scripture, please get that out. We're going to be going through a lot today, so just hang on, buckle up, and pray that God would would use His Word today. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. I've entitled this message, The Gospel Account of the Dreamer. And I know as, you, uh, as you've been around town, you've seen that uh, tis the season, Christmas time, and you might be thinking that, well, Christmas messages aren't, aren't really in Genesis uh, 37, but I believe God can uh, relate that to us today. As we look in Genesis 37, it sounds really good in here right now because I hear pages turning. I hear Bibles flipping and it's a good sound. God's people getting out His Word and you hear it? But some of you, you very advanced people with your, your iPad. Yeah, I see someone waving them at me. Genesis 37. Let's, let's uh, turn our attention to God's word. Starting in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers, of them, to their father. Now Israel, who is Jacob as well, interchangeable names there. Now Israel, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. That robe of many colors, or, or maybe it was long sleeve, it signified something more elite, something more unique, something more special about Joseph. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to him, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And we told it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves on the ground before you. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, God. We pray that you would bless the preaching and the teaching and the reading of your word, God. We need your help with your word today, God. I pray that you would open up our hearts to see what you would have for us today in your holy scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You ever remember dreams growing up? Some, some people will, will tell me that I, I can't really remember any dreams. But see, I do. I remember some dreams that I had when I was a kid. Some of them were, were strange. And if I were explaining them to you, you'd be like, you're weird. But see, I'm the kind of guy that remembers dreams. I, I remember uh, even they, they seem real. They seem like there's colors. And, and I don't know. I mean, you're, 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 you might try to like psychoanalyze me here or something like that. I, don't worry. I got problems. You don't have to. You don't have to go there, okay? But as a kid, I remember some of my dreams, and maybe you do too. And um, I remember when I was growing up, my, uh, uh, my dad was involved with baseball, my granddad, and my dad wanted me involved with baseball. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, going through drills and, and coming to my senses and saying, wait a minute, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't have to 
So it was like dream walking or, or I don't know what you call that. Maybe you, maybe you do that. We try to think, we try to overthink dreams. We try to make them mean more than they are. I think sometimes we can deceive ourselves trying to make our dreams mean something. I was literally laughing until it hurt last night when I was reading uh, certain things that people, experts of dreams, I don't know who these, I don't know how, how you, you get one of those uh, accolades or something, but they have a huge list and they've determined what, if you're dreaming about certain things, what that means. And, and I, there's a lot of them that were hilarious, but I'm just going to share a few, few with you. If you'll bear with me, if you'll humor me on this, if you see Abraham Lincoln, in your dreams, it refers to your solid character and your leadership ability. That's what they say. Really, that's nice. If you see or wear a jetpack in your dreams, it suggests that you are being propelled to a position of power. What? Why? And see, my mind, I start thinking of all these crazy things. Listen to this. It gets better. There's so many good ones. To dream that you are on Splash Mountain. All right, raise your hand if you're a fan of Disney World, been to Splash Mountain, you're, you're going through the ride, and you know it's fixed to come, and you're fixing to take the plunge, and the water's going to go everywhere, and all the people standing on the rail are going to get drenched. So if you dream that you are on Splash Mountain, it suggests that you need to take a chance on a relationship and make that emotional plunge. <laughs> to dream that you are wearing false teeth, who dreams that? Indicates that you are not being completely honest. In a waking matter. To dream that others are wearing false teeth. <laughs> suggests that someone in your life is not who they say they are. They're being deceitful. So you're in a relationship. You're thinking about taking it to the next step, guys. You have a dream about Splash Mountain. You go to your girlfriend and say, hey, I think we need to take the next plunge in our relationship. Because I had a dream about Splash Mountain. And then she says, I don't think so. I had a dream that you had false teeth last night. <laughs> And I think we need to just go ahead and end it now. Like I was hurting myself laughing at some of the ridiculous things that people say that dreams mean. So what does this mean for us? I think that we can uh, sometimes overanalyze our dreams. So I don't think we need to value our dreams over God's word. So if you have some kind of reoccurring dream or something, you need to consult scripture. Let scripture teach you about what you should do, especially if you're in your dream and you think that you've come to the conclusion that you need to make a life change, like a new career or uh, if you're dreaming about Splash Mountain or something. I mean, you need to consult mature believers, consult scripture before you go off doing something in your life because of a dream. Now, we find in scripture uh, dreams are very, very prominent. Especially in uh, this day and time where Joseph is. Um, if you've ever studied the uh, ancient Egyptian culture, they, um, they very much uh, thought dreams were super important. I mean, they would actually have little rituals where they would prepare themselves that night for a dream that they would hope they would have to consult some deity or something in, in their dream. And they would do certain things, certain, like write on their right hand and... They would write, make notes and they would burn them. Different things that they would try to get to where they could manipulate their dreams coming up. So we see in Genesis 37, we see uh, a very important story of, of how, and, and it's involving with dreams. And most people in this room, we don't really uh, value dreams as much as they did then. When we look at Genesis 37, we see... Uh, we see how dreams can really, really affect a person's future and the outcome of really God's people in general. Joseph, this dreamer, maybe he's just got his, heads, his head in the clouds or, and he goes and he tells his brothers about the dreams. Maybe he's just socially tone deaf or something. He just, or maybe he actually thinks that the dreams that he has are from God. Maybe he knows because... Right away, you want to kind of be like, don't tell them about that. Look, you're 17 and your brothers are older and tougher than you. Don't go up and say, walking down to the breakfast table and say, hey, guys, I had a dream again last night. You want to hear it? Anybody? 
They're going to be like, no, we don't want to hear your dreams about how we're coming before you and you're reigning over us. We don't, hear, we don't want to hear that. But maybe Joseph knew that there was something significant about his dreams. I, I tend to think that he did. We have this character, Joseph, this 17-year-old favorite son, working, being loved by his father, being hated by his brothers, seeming to do the right thing. You know, sometimes we, we uh, attack people for being tattletales. I have young kids, and if you don't have young kids, you haven't done this in a while. But if you have young kids, then sometime maybe in the last couple of weeks, you've said, don't be a tattletale. Well, Joseph is having these dreams, but he's also going to his father because his brothers are, and they're just acting up. They're doing some things that they shouldn't be doing. And Joseph just says, hey, this is what they're doing. And they hated him even the more because of that. So we have this favorite 17-year-old son of Jacob, this despised little tattletale. He tells his brothers his dreams. But really what's happening here is these dreams are from God. These dreams are truth. And his brothers are rejecting that. So what happens a lot of times when we're reading a passage like this, we tend to be pretty harsh on his brothers. We, we kind of, you know, we want to stand by Joseph and like get on, get on to the brothers. And you, know, you shouldn't be acting like that. What they're doing is they're simply rejecting God's truth. Have, we, have you ever done that before? Have you ever rejected God's truth before? Everybody in this room, if we're honest, we've rejected God's truth before. We've rejected His love. And we think, who would do that? But we have. We've rejected His grace. We've rejected His mercy. We've rejected his forgiveness as he extends a hand of peace and forgiveness. And there are times in our lives we've simply batted that away. We've rejected God's truth. We've rejected his call. How many stories are around this room of God coming in close to you, squeezing into your life, placing a call in your life about something, and you've simply rejected God's call? Not only are they rejecting God's truth, they're resenting someone. They really resent Joseph. You ever done that? I think we we all can say that we've resented someone before. Maybe somebody's got a better job, a better family. Maybe someone has a better marriage. And you see them here at church or you see them at work. And they come bounding in like everything's great. Because everything maybe is great in their life. And, and all you see is just this, this uh, wellspring of just blessing in their life. And we tend to maybe resent that person a little bit. Because things maybe aren't stacking up in our favor like we, we want them to. Or we think they should. Or maybe we would even go so far as to say we deserve Better. We even deserve what they have. So careful. Careful when you look at Joseph's brothers. Do a little shame, shame, shame thing and shake your finger at them. I don't think we need to be too harsh with him. We, ne- we next see in our story, and what we're going to do today is we're going to look and we're going to take a big, wide snapshot of the life of Joseph. And we're going to bring that to us today. And we're going to relate it to the manger. So let's keep going. Chapter 37. What happens after what we just read? Well, as you read through there, there's a, uh, there's a plot. His brothers, they say, come. What do they say? Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let's kill him. Let's figure out a way to kill him. He's got a lot of brothers. Reuben, if you read through the story, and I want to encourage you to take Genesis chapter 37 and read it through the end of the book. I have a real hard time reading the story of Joseph to the end of Genesis and not simply breaking down and crying. I remember when uh, we were reading through Genesis as a family at the dinner table and I'm reading through and I get through the, the life of Joseph and wrapping up Genesis and at the dinner table with my kids and my wife, we're sitting there and I start crying. 
My kids are like, why are you crying? Because this story is an amazing story. And it holds a lot for us that I think would be very beneficial for us today to look at. Reuben, one of the brothers, what does he say? He says, if you read through the story, he says, uh, maybe he likes Joseph a little bit. He says, well, let's just throw him in a pit. Well, see, Reuben's plan is later to go and bring him up out of the pit and maybe get him back to Pops and kind of restore that that relationship. We, we see that that didn't work out as planned for Reuben. And he gets upset about that. But But Judah... Judah says, let's sell him to the Midianite, the um, Ishmaelite. Let's sell him to these traders, these slave traders. Now, that's a pretty good plan. So they take Joseph, this favorite son, take him out of the pit. The, the, the royal robe, it's got blood all over it. They take, him to, they take the robe to the father. Your son has been devoured by a wild beast is the conclusion. And here's Joseph, the son of Israel, heading to Egypt. Joseph begins this long, long journey with pain. This long journey of God working in the details of his, of his pain. It's funny how I've, and, and I count it to God's providence, but um, as you read through the story of Joseph, you see that God is working in the details of a painful situation. And also this account of this dreamer. This week, I've had back-to-back conversations. Someone came up to me and they had questions about some, some things they were dreaming over and over. And I had a conversation about dreams this week. And I had a conversation again. I was listening to these people talk about this really painful situation they've had to walk through and how God was doing things in the background that they didn't really see and the details and God was doing things. And, and, and at, at the other side of that, they looked back and said, God has been working in ways that we didn't see at first. This journey of pain, God is orchestrating the details these conversations for me just confirm that this is what God would have for us this morning. I love the story of the Exodus. We love that story. I mean, that's one of our favorite stories. That's one of the favorite stories of all throughout Scripture because it's mentioned over and over. Read through the New Testament. They bring up Moses. They start talking about the Exodus. And we have to ask our questions. Well, okay, so we love God delivering His people out of Egypt saving them out of Egypt, taking them out of tyranny and slavery, this great nation of people out of slavery in Egypt. But then we ask ourselves a question, and many of us in here know, well, how did they get in Egypt to, the, to begin with? Joseph. Joseph, a 17-year-old dreamer, tied up with a rugged band of Midianite slave traders, the fetters and shackles, 17-year-old boy shaking his head like, thinking, what in the world is going on here? But God had a plan. God had a plan. In the story of Joseph, we take a a brief interlude in chapter 38, a very uh, Jerry Springer-esque almost interlude. It's a shady story. But we get a glimpse of the line of Judah in 38. And if you read through the line, if you read through that story and you see that the Messiah comes out of the line of Judah, you wouldn't put that chapter in there because I'm telling you, look, you can't make this up. If, if I were to make this story up, I wouldn't put chapter 38 in there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the line of the Messiah. I wouldn't put him to have anything to do with, with Judah. <laughs> maybe, maybe Reuben. He seems a little bit more stand upish. So we have this brief interlude in Genesis 38. And we get back to Joseph's story in Genesis 39. We see this despised brother. He now becomes a slave in a foreign land. Genesis 39, read with me. 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian... Had, brought, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, from the slave traders who had brought him down there. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. 
His master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome and well-built. Or he was handsome in form and appearance. We see right here. We can, we can pull back a little bit in the story of Genesis. Back to Genesis chapter 12. You can read through that. Where God says to Abraham, I'm going to use your seed to be a blessing to other nations. Right here, we see this happening right here. This Egyptian house is greatly blessed to the seed of Abraham. And Joseph finds himself in Potiphar's house. This young, maybe 17, 18-year-old, strong, handsome guy. But Potiphar's house doesn't go so well for him. We can read through that. You can see what happens. Uh, Potiphar's wife, I think she probably has some serious issues. You can read through uh, Genesis chapter uh, 39. You can see that Potiphar's wife, she liked Joseph too much. She tried to trap him. She tried to trick him. She traps Joseph with some crazy Jerry Springer stuff. Gets his, gets his uh, jacket, gets his garment. Potiphar comes in and she lies about it and says, he tried to rape me. In chapter 39, verse 9, Joseph says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know, if I could just pause here and talk to our men for a little bit. This idea of this great wickedness. If I could just talk to you guys a little bit about the temptation that's uh, assaulting on every every front. It's there. It's ever present. It's a mouse click away. It's a turning of the head away. May it be said of you guys, of me, that we respond to this type of temptation, to this type of sin, as Joseph did. May we say, never! How can I do such a great wickedness and sin against God? Guys, may you consistently pray for purity in your life. Temptation's around the corner. There's a Potiphar's wife waiting to trap you. There's a Potiphar's wife waiting when you're home alone by yourself. There's a Potiphar's wife waiting for you at work. There's a Potiphar's wife. Guys, may we pursue purity with such ferocious tenacity that we say, as Joseph did, how can I commit such great wickedness? She, she grabbed his, his garment and he put, shucked it off and took off running. We got to run. That's the only way. Run far away from sexual temptation. Run, run, run for your life. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, at one point, he stops up his ears because there's, there's nagging coming at him. He stops up his ears and he runs and he, he, he proclaims life, life, eternal life. May we run from this type of temptation. And we plug up our ears and close our eyes and say, no, 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 life, life, eternal life. Run. Put on Joseph's shoes and run from temptation. John Piper said this. To be caught in secret sin is a horrible thing. There's only one thing worse. That's to not be caught. Run. Plead with you. Run. This guy Joseph, every turn of his story, man, it's like he runs into hardship, difficulty, traps, pain, left and right. It's like it just... 
keeps piling up on him. By the end of chapter 39, Joseph, he's locked in a dungeon. But as you see in 39, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who, was, who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God was with him. God was with him in the pit. God was with him in Potiphar's house, protecting him. God was with him in the prison. The next, next turn in this story, this life of Joseph, chapters 40 and 41, we see uh, dreams happen again. You see a uh, couple of guys that, that have dreams in prison. It's the I, I really like this story how there's the, the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker of Pharaoh. Something happened. We don't know what happened, but they get thrown in prison. And I think we can just probably just come up with ideas of what might have happened. Maybe the, maybe the baker made some bad muffins. The Pharaoh didn't like it. The cupbearer should have tasted it and said, don't give these to him. Anyway, the Pharaoh got something bad that happened. They, they should have come. They should have stopped it. And they get thrown in prison. The cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker. Well, Joseph's in prison. Well, these two guys, they have a couple of dreams. And they have these dreams. And, and the cupbearer has this dream about these three uh, branches coming off this vine. And he wakes up and he's kind of like nervous. What's going on with this dream? Well, it turns out that who else had a dream? Well, the, the baker had a dream as well. Three, there's these, these cake pans that are on his head. And he's dreaming about this. And he doesn't know what it means. Because, you know, in ancient Egypt, dreams meant a lot. He said, we don't know what these dreams mean. Well, Joseph knows what the dreams mean. Why? Because God's gifted him with this. You see over and over that God, he, he gives glory and uh, honor to God in the sense that Joseph's like, God will interpret the dreams. He tells the cupbearer, he says, you're going to rise back to your position. It's going to be okay. In three days. Tells the baker what? It's not so good for you. And what happens? The cupbearer, three days, he gets back to his position. Being the cupbearer. And Joseph said to the cupbearer, he said, please, whatever you do, I've been in here a long time. And you can look through the timeline in Joseph's life. It's probably about 11 years that he's been in dungeon, in prison, in shackles. And he looks at the cupbearer and he says, hey, when you get back to your position of prominence with Pharaoh, can you remember me? Oh, yeah, sure, man. Thanks for the good report on the dream. The baker doesn't get a good report. Both of them rise back up. What happens to the cupbearer? He gets his position back. What happens to the baker? Hanged. Bad muffins. Real bad muffins. And what happens? Does the cupbearer remember Joseph? He doesn't remember Joseph. And for two more years, Joseph is in prison. About 13 years total in prison. Joseph, who... Walking with the Lord. The Bible says that he's, that God is causing everything that he touches basically to succeed. Yet, he's still in prison. Frustration is the best way that I can explain this part of Joseph's life. There's a time, and I'm going to tease my wife a little bit, but she's rocking it out in kingdom kids right now, so don't tell her. Okay? There was a time where my wife was really frustrated with something. I said, you know what the definition of frustration is? What an idiot who says that. I said, you know what the definition of frustration is? I said, it's when your expectations and your reality collide. Hey, that's a pretty good definition of frustration, guys. But don't tell your wife that when she's frustrated. This is, what hap- this is happening in Joseph's life. His expectations and his reality is colliding. Here's the, here's the cupbearer. Maybe, maybe it'll be a turn of events and he can, you know, he can get me out of here. Just forgets. In two more years, two more years in prison. If you keep reading, there's more dreams that happen. Pharaoh himself has some dreams. And he wakes up and he's sweating. He has a couple of dreams. 
He's dreaming about these, these cows coming up out of the river. Okay? Right? You know the story. Many of us do. Some of us have never read this story. The cows are coming up out of the river. There's healthy cows and there's sick cows in this dream. There's seven healthy and seven sickly. And he's dreaming about these cows and these little bitty tiny shriveled up sick cows. They eat the plump healthy cows. Pharaoh wakes up. What in the world is that all about? It's got to mean something. Well, he has another dream. Stalks are raised up in his dream. These ears of grain of, are, are growing and there's seven grains that are healthy and they look good and plump and ripe. And then there's seven grains that are skinny and really just need to be thrown away. Those skinny seven grains swallow up the plump, healthy ones. So Pharaoh's sweating. Well, what does this mean? He goes to some of his visors. They're like, mm-hmm. But his cupbearer's like, wait a minute. There's this young Hebrew. Yeah, I remember when I was in prison, he interpreted my dream. Let's go get him. Two years after. Two years after. Goes and gets this young Hebrew. Bring, they, they, they get him out of prison. They clean him up. Shave him. He's got a long, awesome beard at this point. Some duck dynasty going on, right? So they clean him up. So you got to go before Pharaoh. Joseph's like, okay. Here's his chance, right? Pharaoh looks at him and says, hey, I heard that you can interpret dreams. Nope, can't do it. But God can. Here we have this character, Joseph. Where, where does he come from? Where are the gods that are like this? Well, I know some that walk these halls. And I know some that are out in the trenches doing ministry. And I want to be like this. Pushing through persistence in the dungeon, in the pit, Potiphar's house, giving all glory and honor to God. He says, I can't interpret your dreams, but God can. He says, seven years, there's going to be a lot. Seven years of plenty. Man, you're going to have food piling up like crazy. But that seven years of plenty is going to be followed by seven years of drought. And it's going to be hard. And you need to prepare for that. Here's this Hebrew guy talking to the most powerful man on the planet at this point. You need to prepare for that. You need to get ready. You need to appoint a wise person to oversee that. Pharaoh's like, great, when do you start? We have our friend Joseph thrown in the pit by his brothers, thrown in a cage by the slave traders, gets to Potiphar's house, that shaky wife of his. He gets thrown in the pr- prison for almost 13 years. And he's humbly walking with God. And God lifts him up. Pharaoh says, good, when do you start? Chapter 41 we see Joseph is catapulted from the prison to the palace. Look at this, chapter 41. Y'all still with me, right? Chapter 41, verse 40 says, You shall be over my house, Pharaoh says, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. This is Pharaoh talking to this prisoner, cleanly shaven prisoner, I must add. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. That nice robe, that cloak, signified special significance. It was dipped in blood. Now Joseph has another robe on. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee before Joseph. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Shortly after this, Joseph has a couple of sons. He names his first son Manasseh, which means God has made me forget my hardships in my father's house. His second son he names Ephraim which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What a great example that we have of Joseph. Chapter 41, 
Look at this. Here comes the famine, just like he said. Just like God said, God keeps his promises. Chapter 41, verse 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all all the earth. Chapter 42. When Jacob, Joseph's dad, says, more than two decades later, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are y'all looking at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, through your seed, I'm going to bless all the nations. What we got happening here? All the nations are coming to Joseph to buy grain, to get fed. They don't want to die. The blessings of God are being shed abroad across boundaries, cultural, political. People are coming to Joseph. This story goes on. It gets even better. If you read through, he's, Joseph is reunited with his brothers and they... He reveals himself to them. They don't recognize him at first. And they they embrace each other with hugs. And they're falling on each other's necks. And they're weeping. And there's forgiveness that just starts sprouting up everywhere. Man. And then Pops comes onto the scene. Jacob. After a couple of trips to Egypt with his sons, his family. Joseph. His beloved son. Is reunited with his dad. I love this story. I love it. I think this story can teach us a lot. I think we can glean a lot from this. I think we can learn a lot from this dreamer. First thing I believe that we can clearly see is that God is with us. God is with us. As I just kind of sweep my eyes across this, this, this room, I see countless people who have gone through times of affliction, of, of the pit. And in the pit, by yourself, even your shadow leaves you. But God's close. He's with you. We see in this story that God is with us. He's with us in the pit. He's with us in times of severe temptation and and attack. There's a Potiphar's house in our past, some of y'all. God is with us. He's walking with us. He's guiding us. Ever spent a long, hard season in a dungeon? Whatever your dungeon might be, some of you are looking back at a prison in your life, whether it's some kind of prison of sin that you were, were locked in, whether it's some kind of oppression by a relationship, some kind of abuse that you were experiencing. See, that prison stinks. It's dark. And it hurts. We're bound up. And year after year after year, we might see a flicker of hope, then two more years passes. But through it all, God is with us. There's this paradox of God's presence in the life of the believer. Jesus said, Matthew 28, what did he say? He says, I'm with you always. And the paradox is that, as in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will... Seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Well, wait a minute. Jesus said, I'm with you always. And now God's word saying, seek God with all your heart. And when you do that, you'll find him. The great paradox of our faith is we have been found and we have found our peace and our joy and our hope in the sovereign king of the universe. But day after day, we seek him. He fills our cup. And the only thing left to do with the full cup with God is to lift it up for more. 
You know, people talk about glass empty, glass full. I'm kind of a realist, not a pessimist or an optimist. I think that the glass is half empty, but there's free refills, right? And God fills our cup and we just lift it up for more. More, more, more. We seek after God, even though Jesus said, I'm with you always. Sometimes we're walking through a season and we're like, God, where are you? But in reality, God is closer than your skin. Joseph would look back at that prison and say, I wouldn't change any of that. Because there was a season in my life where God was with me. God walked with me. He talked with me. He led me. He helped me. You ever, uh, you ever been looking for your glasses and they're on your face? And somebody near you is like, what are you doing? I ain't find my glasses. Wake up, pay attention, get your head out of the clouds. They're on your face. So sometimes in my life, I think I'm going crazy. There was one time I was talking to somebody on my cell phone and I got annoyed with them because I'm like, hold on, I'm looking for my phone. (laughs) That I had from, uh, I don't know. Sometimes we get pretty ridiculous in our Christian faith. Like, where is God? Where where is He? I don't I don't feel Him in my life. He's right there. He's closer than you think. He's on your face. Just look in the mirror. He's not far. I, I promise you, there are people in this room that, that, that hear my voice feel like God is further than the moon in your life. And he's been like that for a long time. You you got it all wrong. He's sitting right next to you. He's in the pages of this story. He's walking beside you at work. He's in your Sunday school class. He's driving down the road with you. Seek God with all your heart and you will find him and you'll realize he's been right there the whole time. I love that. Doesn't mean that you won't get thrown in the pit. Just means that while you're in the pit, you won't be alone in the pit. And that's a good place to be. It's a good place to be to be in the pit with God. It's a bad place to be to be in the palace without him. But our culture, our country... Media around us wants to sell us this idea that what we really need is to be on, in the palace without God. May I confess to you today that I would rather be in the pit with God than in the palace without Him. We learn this from the life of Joseph, that God is with us. There's more things that we can learn from Joseph. The next thing that I would submit to you is Uh, Something that I say often to myself, and I I tell my kids this, but they don't get it yet. It's a a mini three-word sermon, and it's plow your row. When problems are around you, and somebody else has got it working out good, and, well, where's God in my life in this, and what do I do here? Well, I know what you do. You plow your row. Go look at somebody else's row. Well, what they got going on? Look at them. They got every, they got the more blessings, or they oh they got they got something better over here. Plow your row. Embrace integrity. Pray for that. Joseph gets accused, gets beaten up, gets thrown in prison, rejected by his brothers, scolded by his father, thrown in the pit, the prison. But through it all. He walked in integrity and he plowed his row. You know people like this that walk in integrity. Let me ask you a question. You ever thought about why Potiphar didn't kill Joseph? This Hebrew slave, young guy, who his wife accused him of raping. This Egyptian Potiphar, person of prominence, powerful, He did what? 
Anybody else? Before he got three steps away from him, Joseph would have been dead. But maybe Potiphar saw something in Joseph. And we read in the text that he did. Joseph walked with integrity. He stood upright. You see that? You read that? Have you noticed that? Potiphar should have killed him. Cut his head off. He's done. That's not happening in my house, not with my wife. But Potiphar knew Joseph. And maybe Potiphar knew his wife too. He's like, I know what she's capable of. We see Joseph plowing his row, walking ahead in integrity, embracing God's presence and doing what God has called him to do. Giving God glory, attributing to him. There's another story in the New Testament. Basically, Jesus tells someone, plow your row. Don't worry about anything else. In John chapter 21, should come on the screen. John chapter 21, verse 20 through 22. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So here Joseph is, okay? He probably was tempted with some thought like this. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing and nothing's working out for me. And maybe he goes to the Lord, the God that he follows and serves. And maybe he says, Lord, I'm just, I'm just kind of curious what's going on. And I feel like I'm walking with you. I feel like I'm doing what you're calling me to do. Well, and all these other people are doing better than me. And I just see Jesus whispering to Joseph in the prison, in the palace, at Potiphar's house, just saying, just you follow me. Don't worry about anybody else. You plow your row. So you're living in a house with a lot of people. You got brothers, sisters, maybe you have people uh, moving in with you. You got all these people around you at work and they're doing this and they're doing that. You're all concerned about everything else going on. And, and you're, you're looking at the news and it's, everything's falling apart. And every, every just, it's just a mess. Everywhere you turn, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. People are hurt. People are broken. People are dying. It's just awful everywhere. And we look around and we, we start... Going through all the, the, the puddles that are around us. We start picking up all these broken pieces. And we're like, God, what about this? What about this? And I'm not saying that you don't go to God in prayer about everything. But sometimes God needs to lean in close to you and say, don't worry about that. You follow me. And we see an example, I believe, of Joseph. You follow me. You trust that God is working for his glory and for your good. You let God be your avenger. You don't have to rise up, take up arms. Someone has falsely accused you or done something against you. And you notice when Joseph was in the palace, he didn't, ooh, I'm going to go after that woman. Potiphar's wife is done. He didn't say that. She's not even mentioned again. Joseph is walking in integrity. He's letting God work. He's realizing that God was working in the details. He's trusting the one on the real throne and he's plowing his row. He's walking humbly with God. That's what a lot of us just need to get today. Just walk humbly with God. As, as everything else is going haywire around you, you just walk just walk humbly with your God. Because God keeps his promises. And God preserves his people. If you belong to him, if he's your savior, he's purchased you with the, the greatest price to, to be paid is the blood of Jesus. And he's brought you into himself and he's adopted you into his family. And he's taking care of all the details. He's keeping you. Just plow your row. I think one of the greatest verses in this narrative we see in chapter 50, 
verse 20. He says to his brothers, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Many of you know this. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Circle that verse. Circle that verse in your Bible. So we see in, with the life of Joseph that God is with us. And plow your row. The next thing that we see in this story is there's two undeniable friends in this story that also walk side by side throughout the pages of Scripture. They're undeniable friends, they're unexplainable friends. Theologians, historians, scholars have been wrestling back and forth. How do we reconcile these two friends? Maybe one of them doesn't exist, or maybe one of them does. How do we put these friends together and make it make sense? And here are these two friends that I believe are completely undeniable throughout the pages of Scripture. The first friend is the sovereignty of God. And the second friend is the responsibility of man. God is completely sovereign and knowledgeable of every circumstance and the details. God is completely knowledgeable of and sovereign over everything that's going to happen in your future and my future. God is knowledgeable of that and he's sovereign over it. But we see also that we can't excuse the actions of men. You just can't get away from that throughout Scripture. And I believe firmly in the sovereignty of God. I teach it. I embrace it. I love it. I like talking about it. It lets me lay my head down at night sometimes and go to sleep. That God's got this, the circumstances worked out. He's, he's orchestrating the details in our lives. He's, he's preparing people and places and things. And certain things are going to work out in certain situations. And you're looking at it like, I don't get it. And you're praying and you're praying and you're praying that God will do this. And God says, and throws you a curveball and he does something else. And you're like, why are you doing that, God? You're ruining my life. And then what happens? Five, ten years later, you look back at that prayer that you prayed. And you said, God, you, yeah, okay, you were right. Because God is sovereign. We've got to get that. That today, right now. He is on the throne, unshakable, unmoved. His will is not thwarted. His counsel and his plans stand firm. There's no plan B. God's not like, what do I do now? He's relaxed because his purpose and his plan are perfect. We really, really get that. You really, really, really get that. That will, I promise you, affect your life. It affects the way you see things. It affects the way you see pain in your life. And it affects the way you see blessing in your life. And his friend, this sovereignty of God, his buddy is the responsibility of man. Proverbs 16, 33, the Bible says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Make your plans. Come up with your agendas. But ultimately, the decision is in God's hands. We, we read this story of a, a, a little Polaroid that snapped and and. And it comes clear when you read uh, in Psalm 105. What does Psalm 105 say? It says in verse 16, When He, who? God. When He summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with the fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said come to pass. The word 
of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people's set him free. He made him Lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to, bu- to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. In verse 23, the first part of the, verse 23 in Psalm, I love this. Then Israel came to Egypt. See, we, we love the story of Israel being led out of captivity. And we have this huge group of people that are slaves and they're crying out to God, please help, please help. And the story recounts, it says, God heard their cry and he remembered their suffering and their anguish and their affliction. And and he sent Moses. Yeah, he sent Moses to lead them out, but he sent Joseph to get them there. God has this whole thing rigged. (laughs) And that's okay. That's good. Because that's the kind of God I want to trust. That's the kind of God I want to walk with. That's the kind of God that we can embrace life's pain with. Because He has a purpose. And maybe His purpose is for us to simply trust Him more. In your pain, in your bondage, in your prison, in your pit, maybe God just wants you to trust Him more. Maybe He's not going to give you a key to get out. Here, just unlock it. Maybe he just wants you to trust him more. You know, this story is a great example of Romans 8, 28. We know this. We've quoted it. We've misquoted it. We've gotten angry at people who've quoted it to us. We've tried to embrace it ourselves. What does Romans 8, Romans 8, 28 says? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a good illustration of that right there, that truth. But you know, there's something better in this story. There's something greater in this story. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV. We don't have cable or satellite. We haven't for years. And uh, Netflix is kind of the way we roll and it's got a ton of kids programs. And so it's really annoying for the most part, but... I watched this show called Undercover Boss, okay? Maybe you like it, maybe you've seen it. I'm not recommending that you watch it. I'm recommending you do something better with your time than watch TV. But anyway, this show, Undercover Boss, takes these big companies and the CEO of the company goes in disguise and they have cameras following him around, a little made-up reality show. This guy's trying to get back into the workplace and he's going to try to be, uh, you know, my favorite one was when uh, the CEO of the Cubs goes and works at Wrigley Field. And the camera's following him around and he's like cleaning up the bathrooms and the guy that's helping him clean the bathrooms like, now you're doing it all wrong, man. You gotta... And he gets frustrated because the CEO can't do it right, but they're working side by side and they're getting wet and they're sweating together and, and um, things aren't really working good there. So he, he goes to sell hot dogs, hot dogs, hot dogs, and selling hot dogs. And the guy that's trying to teach him how to sell hot dogs, he's like, you know, walking down the steps with him and this big case, he's helping him carry it and everything like that. And he's like, you got to holler out and you got to be confident about your hot dogs. And, and then he goes up in the, the best part was when they went up into the, uh, the scoreboard and he's, and they're, they're changing out the numbers and stuff like that. And he's sitting there with this guy and they're talking about the Cubs and everything like that. Well, at the end of the show, what's great is the CEO, he comes clean. He says, look, the whole time you've been working, the whole time you've been doing your job, you've been plowing your row. And I'm the owner of it all. And I've been walking with you this whole time. The CEO of the company is shoulder to shoulder, just walking, working, talking, seeing how things operate, blessing those that are working hard. This entire story of Joseph points to our great CEO, Jesus. As we see him walking through the pages of the Old Testament, as we see him walking through this story, um, there's, a, there's a book that we have in our house. It's called The Jesus Storybook. And as you look at this book, you see that this is a kid's book. 
But I have to be quite honest. This is probably one of my most favorite books that I've ever owned. And it takes different stories and pictures are there. You can read it to your kids. It's really good. I like it. The story of Joseph tells a story of him in prison. And at the end of the story, it says, one day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and they'd want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he'd done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince even the bad things to do something good. To forgive the sins of the whole world. I love the story of Joseph. Do you read it? We see that there's twice as much information about Joseph in Genesis as Abraham. It's because this is a miniature picture of our Messiah, our Redeemer. We read of the sufferings of Joseph and his glorious exaltation. We are reading exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus. We speak of Joseph. We speak of his blameless life. We speak of his father's love. We speak of one sent for his lost brethren. We speak of one placed in a pit, stripped of his robe, sold for silver, delivered to the Gentiles. Then we speak of his life, the dark land of Egypt, We speak of his Gentile bride, his elevation to the kingship of the land, and finally, the revelation of him who is to his brethren who's been saved from death through him. This passage is paralleled in what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. That's the story of Joseph right in front of our faces. You can't miss the parallels. That God uses this dreadful sin to preserve His people. God uses a dreadful sin to save His people for all eternity. We, we find ourselves today, possibly, many of us, rejoicing the love, the provision, the providence of our God, our Savior, as He's guided us, as He's carried us through, through the pit, prison, whatever else, Potiphar's house. But I believe there's many people here today that are far from this prince. And this prince looks past any kind of show that you put on, any kind of mask that you can put on to fool everybody else that you got it all together. This prince knows that you're in a famished land that's dry and running out of water. And this prince, this king, this prince of peace says to you and to me today, come, make that trip. He's calling you to himself. Revelation twenty two seventeen says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. God's got it all rigged to bring you to Himself. So you don't have to walk around that cracked, dusty, parched land. Year after year, day after day, 
You've lived your life far too long in the drought. Far too long. And I don't care who you are in this room. I don't care how many years you've been part of this church. But God knows your heart. He knows the desert lands that are represented across this room. And he would say to you today, look what I've done. Look how I've put the pieces in order. And many of us find ourselves maybe in a prison or a pit. And we push back away from this prince. And we say, look at, look at what I... Look, look at what I'm going through right now. And that prince says, I know. Come on. Come. Right now, today, come. My arms are open. I've done everything necessary for you to have a right relationship with me. All the steps that needed to be stepped. All the details that needed to be sorted out. He says to you and me today, I've done it all. In a few weeks, this whisper, this story that whispers of of someone coming, in a few weeks, we'll celebrate that truth. That he came. 2,000 years ago, he came and he opened the, the way for us to come free of charge to him. He's not far away, as many of us think. He's very near. Come receive the gift of eternal life, salvation. That the Prince of Peace can give you today. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, God, for your truth. God, we thank you for your love, for your mercy. Lord, I pray for those who are weary in the parched land. Lord, I pray that they would simply come to you. And they would look around and say, what are you doing looking? Looking around, let's go. Go to him. So God, I pray for repentance in this place today. God, I pray for restoration in this place today. God, I pray for healing. Lord, I pray that someone today would find themselves in the arms of their Savior as you embrace them, as you weep upon their neck, as you hold them close, and as you offer them life, life, eternal life, free of charge. So God, would you use this time to bring people to yourself? We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.